0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CNS February 2021 edition of the Journal Club podcast. This is Dr. Han Yan from the University of Toronto as your host today. Um, we will be discussing the article, Vocal Cortical Dysplasia 3A in Hippocampal Sclerosis Associated Epilepsy, Anatomical, electrical Clinical Profile and Surgical Results from a Multicentric Retrospective Study. Joining us, we have Dr. Massimo Kasu, who is the author of this article. Can you briefly tell us about yourself?
1: Good morning to everybody. I am a senior neurosurgeon at the Epilepsy Surgery Center of Niguarda Hospital in Milan, Italy.
0: Wonderful. We also have uh, two guest faculty and we would like to welcome them. Um, So if you don't mind briefly introducing yourselves, Dr. Harvey Sarnett. You might be muted.
2: <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, I didn't unmute myself. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I'm Harvey Sarnat. I'm a professor of pediatric neurology and neuropathology at the University of Calgary, uh, Faculty of Medicine in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And uh, I have a long interest in uh, focal cortical dysplasias uh, from the standpoint of the neuropathology and uh, am a member of the uh, ILAE uh, Neuropathology Consortium uh, um, uh, for the in Neuropathology for this purpose uh, headed by uh, Professor uh, Ingmar Blumke. Thank
0: you. Wonderful. And Dr. Aryafala.
3: Hi, I'm Dr. Fala, I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon at uh, UCLA Mattel Children's Hospital, and I specialize in epilepsy surgery. Uh, for children.
0: Wonderful. Um, I would like to thank all of our panelists for joining today and thank you to all of our listeners as well. Um, So to begin, Dr. Cosi, would you be able to provide a summary of your paper?
1: Of course. Um, First of all, I want to thank you for this invitation. It is a pleasure and an honor to you to share with you this paper and this study, which is a multicentric retrospective study promoted by the Epilepsy Surgery Commission of the Italian League Against Epilepsy. We have collected pre-surgical, surgical, and post-surgical data of 220 patients operated on from 2011 to 2016 for temporal lobe epilepsy with an histological diagnosis of hippocampal sclerosis. All the patients received a temporal lobectomy so that both hippocampus and neocortical tissues were available for histological evaluation. The main goal of the study was to assess whether the coexistence of neocortical architectural cortical dysplasia or FCD3A, according to the International League Against Epilepsy Classification of FCD, was was associated or not to a distinct anatomo-electroclinical profile and to assess if different seizure outcome occur in FCD cases as compared to cases with with an isolated HS. An association between FCD3A and hippocampus sclerosis was found in 65 cases and an isolated HS in 155 cases. The key finding was that the occurrence of an FCD3A did not affect either the phenotypic profile or surgical results on seizures as compared to cases without an associated FCD. We postulated that the presence of associated FCD is clinically irrelevant in the setting of HS-related temporal lobe epilepsy, and concluded that these results could help a critical revision of the classification of FCD.
0: Okay, that's wonderful. Um, So we'll begin with uh, Dr. Sarnett. Uh, Do you have some questions?
2: Thank you very much. Uh, This is an excellent uh, article. Uh, It's very clinically relevant uh, and uh, um, I think it's a very important uh, contribution. Uh, As a developmental neuropathologist and pediatric neurologist, I have a focus on uh, pathogenesis uh, uh, which this article is more of a, of a clinical a practical uh, application. Uh, but in terms of pathogenesis, one always must look at uh, timing as uh, one of the key elements. And because focal cortical dysplasia is a developmental congenital lesion during uh, fetal life, uh, and uh, hippocampal sclerosis is a postnatally acquired lesion sometimes not appearing for months or even years uh, after uh, birth. Uh, It doesn't make any temporal sense to say that hippocampal sclerosis causes uh, focal cortical dysplasia in the adjacent neocortex uh, of the temporal (laughs) lobe, uh, which is the basis for, uh, 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 for focal cortical dysplasia 2A. Uh, The focal cortical dysplasia associated with temporal uh, lobe uh, hippocampal sclerosis is nearly always type 1 focal cortical dysplasia, which is a microcolumnar architecture with normal neurons. It can be type 2, especially if the patient has tuberous sclerosis or some other mTOR uh, abnormality, but nearly always uh, in the absence of of an mTOR apathy, uh, it's type 1. Now, the columnar architecture of the cortex is the normal pattern in the first half of gestation. And it, uh, it changes at about 22 weeks gestation when you're getting maturation of the, uh, of the neurons of the cortex. Synaptogenesis in the cortical plate is beginning. And uh, the uh, horizontal laminar architecture of the mature brain is beginning to be superimposed on the previous uh, microcolumnar architecture. Uh, even in the normal adult brain, uh, you still see some remnants of the microcolumnar architecture, particularly in regions where there's bending of a gyrus at the crown of the gyrus and at the uh, uh, at the depth of a sulcus. Now. Uh, type one uh, focal cortical dysplasia is highly epileptogenic. That's how it presents. And uh, it's not epileptogenic in the first half of gestation because there are no synapses in the cortical plate. So you cannot have epileptic or even normal uh, synaptic circuitry yet at that age. If we assume that uh, the uh, focal dysplasia Is actually the primary lesion. uh, And it can occur because of chronic ischemia or a number of other conditions, metabolic conditions, most commonly, though, chronic uh, fetal ischemia. And we see this very commonly, for example, in the cortex that's preserved adjacent to a porencephalic cyst. That cortex was not so severely ischemic that it became necrotic and it became part of the porencephaly, but it Arrested the maturation at mid gestation, so that you have retention of the uh, uh, of the uh, microcolumnar architecture, which otherwise would be called focal cortical dysplasia. In this case, we would call it three D because it's adjacent to a porencephalic cyst, but it exemplifies that uh, you can have persistence of the fetal uh, pattern, the early fetal pattern, um, in certain conditions. So in the case of uh, the neocortex adjacent to the hippocampus, uh, if you have a a focal cortical dysplasia, uh, type one or two really, but mainly type one, and it becomes epileptogenic in the postnatal period when there is enough synaptic uh, uh, connections that you can develop uh, epileptic circuitry This leads to the long debated for years or even decades question of whether epilepsy or frequent epileptiform discharges cause uh, hippocampal sclerosis. Uh, I think there's a a lot of evidence in favor of this uh, hypothesis and I I subscribe to it. Uh, There's also some detractors from this hypothesis who feel that uh, that epilepsy does not cause hippocampal sclerosis. This has been debated for a long time. But if we assume for a moment that it can do that, then the focal cortical dysplasia uh, in the neocortex becomes epileptogenic and the chronic epilepsy then induces the hippocampal sclerosis, which itself becomes epileptogenic also uh, and the temporal sequence of how this develops then makes some sense, because to say the hippocampal sclerosis is the primary lesion is, doesn't make any sense from the standpoint of, of the sequence of how these things are capable of developing. So this is how I would uh, try to uh, explain the uh, combination of uh, of the uh, focal cortical dysplasia with hippocampal sclerosis in epilepsy uh, that is now classified as uh, focal cortical dysplasia type 3A, and uh, that doesn't have uh, that doesn't mean that this is uh, 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 going to change uh, patient management, uh, whether surgical or medical, um, but it does help us, I think, understand a little bit. Uh, or give us some insight into uh, how the uh, condition develops uh, in the first place that results in a um, severe uh, uh, refractory epilepsy that may require surgical uh, resection uh, to uh, treat.
0: That's a very good point. And I think uh, it's a very good summary of uh, focal cortical dysplasia and possible interactions. So for Dr. Kasu. Um, how can the timing of the two pathologies you focus on, um, uh, FCD3A and hippocamposclerosis, how can they be uh, reconciled into a logical sequence in terms of timing?
1: Okay, Uh, thank you to Dr. Sarnath for his illustrations. Um, Assessing the pathogenesis of FCD type 3 is a really challenging issue, especially for type 3A. Uh, As you said, the coexistence of the developmental pathologies as FCD and of an acquired lesion as HIS is difficult to explain in a pathogenetic perspective. Um, furthermore, existing evidence is poor since FCD type 3 received very little attention in the literature after the release of the 2011 classification of FCD. And so all the hypotheses are. Uh, may be valuable. Uh, the first one is that, as uh, uh, being illustrated by the, Dr. Sarnath, that the FCD may pre exist to hippocampus sclerosis and may act as a predisposing factor for such seizures, especially for febrile seizures, which could cause the development of hippocampus sclerosis and the associated syndrome of mesial temporal epilepsy. There is one study which reported a higher frequency uh, of the history of febrile convulsions in FCD3A patients compared to HS cases. But this our study did not provide a similar finding. This from the clinical point of view, of course. A second hypothesis, I don't know if there is convincing evidence for, for this. The FCD may be a post-migrational entity as an effect of epileptogenesis associated with hippocampus sclerosis. Uh, if I uh, remember well, a similar hypothesis has been advanced for FCD3D, which are associated with lesions acquired in early life. But I repeat, unfortunately, we do not have convincing evidence for this hypothesis. We have only uh, also to uh, take it, uh, into account uh, uh, an additional possibility, and um, that is that this FCD associated to a principal lesion are massively over-diagnosed or, they de- or that they simply do not exist as proposed by a recent paper focused on the critical update of FCD classification. And uh, as uh, Dr. Sarnath uh, uh, pointed out, some reasons which may support this assumption include, uh, first, that the architecture of cortex is site-dependent with the temporal lobe showing the greatest variability in cortical anatomy. Uh, second, that in normal developed cortex, a microcolumnar arrangement may be preserved that is similar to that of FCD1A. Uh, and uh, such an arrangement may be found at gyro bending or at sulcal bottom. And third, that less experienced pathologists may interpret as pathological some artifacts due to tissue handling and processing. All these factors may contribute to an overestimation for the presence of cortical architectural malformation, at least in the setting of HS-related temporal epilepsy.
0: Okay, great. Um, Dr. Sarnett, do you have uh, any more questions?
2: Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, just in, in response, thank you for that uh, thoughtful response. Uh, the people who uh, sometimes uh, deny that it exists Often are basing their conclusions on imaging uh, evidence. And uh, especially a focal cortical dysplasia of a microcolumnar type uh, uh, really doesn't always provide a lot of uh, changes uh, at the macroscopic level. It's a microscopic finding. And so the imaging isn't always very diagnostic of a structural lesion uh, because it doesn't change the density of the tissue at that at that point. One thing that often does occur, however, is that you see blurring of the gray white matter um, interface or margin, and the reason for that is because you get a dispersion of, um, of uh, heterotopic neurons into the U-fiber layer beneath the cortex, which themselves form a, uh, an intricate uh, synaptic plexus, which uh, communicates with the cortex and contributes to epileptogenesis. But uh, I think that uh, from the standpoint of the neuropathology, I don't think there's any question about uh, abnormal uh, tissue architecture. Uh, there's still some question as to how many uh one must see before you call it uh, abnormal. And that, that quantitative decision hasn't really, there's not been a, a consensus about that just yet and as I mentioned, it occurs more commonly where the gyri is, is bending rather than the straight portion of the gyrus uh, in, along the, um, the sulcus. Um, my other question really was related to this, and that, that uh, related to uh, the uh, onset of the uh, seizures, uh, whether there is uh, uh, a peak or a, uh, a time uh, postnatally when uh, you most commonly would see uh, the uh, focal cortical dysplasia 3A with hippocampal sclerosis. Uh, um, and that, that's, again, a related uh, question to, to timing. Thank you.
1: OK, thank you for your question. Um, as far as I know, there are only two studies which reported that FCD3A cases um, at a lower aged surgery and also shorter epilepsy duration, uh, suggesting that these variables could be a kind of surrogates of more severe epilepsy. Uh, But uh, I think most other studies could not confirm this finding. Um, Anyway, we also addressed these points, but we did not find such uh, correlations in the the subgroup of cases with with FCD3A in our study.
0: Okay, um, some very interesting findings indeed. So uh, Dr. Arya Aryafala, um, do you have any questions for Dr. Kasu?
3: Yes, I do. Thank you again for this excellent and very, very interesting study. Um, I had a, a couple of questions. The first one is that we know um, in epilepsy surgery quite often, you know, this idea of fully removing the lesion or resecting the lesion is, is probably not true when it comes to uh, focal cortical dysplasia. And you know we know that when we follow a lot of these patients uh, for a long time, um, the seizures may recur. So uh, my question to you is, um, is it possible that the dysplastic uh, changes that were detected in the uh, temporal lobe specimens were lesions that were probably not um, epileptically active yet, as in, you know, we know, for example, there's uh, quite a few examples of FCD where patients are not having seizures from that area, or it's uh, quiescent and still not uh, producing seizures, or, you know, a typical case, for example, of tuberous sclerosis complex, where, you know, we have multiple lesions in the brain, but they may not all be, um, uh, you know, causing epilepsy at the moment. So, is it possible that uh, the fact that you didn't see any difference in the seizure outcomes between the two groups, perhaps uh, due to this and, and I guess along the same lines, is it possible that if we followed these patients for longer you would see a difference between the two groups?
1: Thank you. Um, the question is, do they... Epileptogenicity of the concurring FCD in uh, HS related temporal lobe epilepsy is really challenging. And on the assumption that FCD is relevant for epileptogenicity, um, its lack of clinical relevance has two possible explanations for me. The first one is that FCD are not yet epileptically active as suggested by you. But in this case, we should explain the coexistence of two different independent epileptogenic substrates, which activate themselves at different times during the epilepsy history of the patient. Um, and the second one is the FCD is epileptically active only at onset by triggering um, the development of the temporal epileptogenic network and, uh, um, and subsequently, the hippocampus sclerosis. In this latter case, and also in the case that the, the FCD has no role at all in epileptogenicity, we could in part explain why seizure outcomes of temporal lobectomies are not much different from those of selective resection gas missile, of mesial structures, which typically preserve the temporal pole that might, might contain the dysplastic tissue. On the other hand, ICG studies have highlighted the role of the temporal pole in the seizure organization in several cases of mesial temporal lobe epilepsy, irrespective of the presence of additional pathologies in, the re- in this region. And according to this finding, I personally prefer anterior temporal lobectomy than selective procedures. I, uh, however, I, I think and I that the results of our study do not allow to disentangle the question as to the optimal surgical approach for mesotemporal lobe epilepsy with hippocampus sclerosis.
3: Thank you for that. And I, and I think actually um, part of your answer, you, you answered the second question which I had was whether, um, you know, a lot of the focal cortical dysplasia is likely in the temporal pole as we commonly find it. And that, that is usually within the margins of a standard temporal resection. Um, Anyways, so I, I think you, ad- you addressed that in your comment. Um, thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you, Dr. Fowler for your questions. Um, So a few questions for me, Uh, obviously I'm just a resident uh, in training and trying to, you know, still on my stage, understand which patients may benefit from epilepsy surgery. So from reading your study um, in the multivariable analysis, uh, there are three outcomes, uh, extended temporal lobectomy, post-operative EEG, and duration of follow-up were identified as predictors. Um, However, since, you know, two of these are post-surgical, do you think that these results may affect Practice in terms of, you know, as a neurosurgeon or will it really impact how you may change your follow-up as Dr. Fowler mentioned, a lot of epilepsy may reoccur. So how do you think the findings from your study may um, affect how we may all think about uh, neurosurgical um, approaches to epilepsy?
1: Thank you, Dr. Young. Um, here, uh, we are speaking of findings provided uh, on, the, on the whole cohort. Uh, not uh, in the subgroup uh, with uh, FCD3A. This is not uh, uh, really the primary target of the study. Anyway, I agree that predictors which are available only postoperatively are of limited usefulness for changing our practice, especially from the surgical point of view. Um, Nevertheless, I think that some of these postoperative predictors may have an impact on the clinical approach to our patients, at least as to Preoperative counseling and post-operative drug management are concerned. Um, for instance, let's uh, think of post-operative EEG. In our courts, uh, the timing of post-operative EEG varied across centers, ranging from the immediate postoperative days to several months after surgery. So we did not know if the EEG had been recorded before or after seizure recurrence. So we could uh, classify the presence of epileptic form activities only as a marker of failure to control seizures. But at the same time, this means that in a subset of patients, an abnormal postoperative EEG may be available when a relapse of seizure has not yet occurred. And this information is useful to recommend caution in the management of antiepileptic drugs And for instance, in planning their withdrawal uh, then uh, the increased odds of seizure recurrence associated to the duration of follow-up tell us something that uh, actually we already know from previous evidence, that is that late, late re- seizure recurrence may occur in a subset of patients. This possibility should be anticipated to our patients be, before surgery, and nevertheless, our data indicate that the duration of follow-up impacts on angles class 1A, but not on class 1. This means that many patients initially classified as class 1A may present with late seizure relapse occurring during drug tapering or after drug withdrawal. And many of these patients may return to a class 1 status being classified, uh, for instance, as angle class 1D or 1C, after appropriate management of medical regimen.
0: Okay. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, very informative. And again, cra- congratulations on your paper. I think the next question I may actually direct to Dr. Uh, Arifala and Dr. Uh, Harvey Sarnat. Where do you think uh, is the appropriate future direction with regards to um, neuropathology and epilepsy surgery? And I'll ask Dr. Falla specifically, I know you recently published a paper on uh, like tonometry uh, device you're using to correlate with uh, neuropathology during your surgeries so um, where do you think the future uh, of you know epilepsy surgery and understanding uh, histopathology will lie uh,
3: great question um, so you know based on uh, you know my understanding and our you know recently published uh, study looking at you uh, brain tissue stiffness changes in epilepsy, we're actually starting to find that uh, dysplastic changes are actually widespread in the brain. And sort of this idea of, and we would say focal cortical dysplasia being extremely focal is, is, is unlikely to be true. And I, and I think a lot of what we're doing in epilepsy surgery um, is uh, interrupting the network as opposed to fully resecting the epileptogenic network. I, I, I guess only the only exceptions perhaps um, are probably in situations of a low-grade tumor or a cavernous malformation or AVM, but but typically, especially when we're talking about dysplastic lesions, I think we're sort of interrupting um, uh, the circuitry, and that's why the long-term outcomes are extremely helpful. I, you know, I over and over again now at our conferences, we're starting to learn that, you know, one year and even two year outcomes are probably not enough to to be able to assess um, how a patient's going to do in the long term. So um, so for that reason, I think, um, uh, you you know, again, we need to follow these patients for longer. I do think it's still important, you know, this study is very important in sort of um, making us uh, pause and think about the role of dysplastic lesions when there is hippocampal sclerosis. But uh, I certainly, um, you know, my practice, and especially in the pediatric population, uh, our experience is that you need to really address uh, the dysplastic lesion as well. Now, hippocampal sclerosis that's evident on MRI is pretty rare um, finding in children. But, you know, we certainly have a lot of experience where a smaller resection was done, the dysplastic lesion wasn't fully addressed and usually over uh, a course of several years uh, the seizures may return so um, uh, that's been my experience and the other comment I'll make is you know this was alluded to earlier where we're looking at usually the neuropathologist is looking at the most abnormal um, area um, of tissue that's that's sent to them for for that um, pathologic diagnosis. And there's tremendous variability um, uh, in the the tissue that we send. Um, So I think these are factors that need to be considered in future uh, revisions of uh, the ILAE uh, FCD classification. Um, And, you know, it's studies like this that will make us sort of think about what the relevance is of these findings, and in terms of, you know, why is it that we're classifying? Is it from a prognostic perspective, or is it just purely from a, uh, you know, uh, from a histological perspective, or just to classify these lesions?
0: That's a very good point, um, Dr. Sarnat. Do you have uh, any comments?
2: Yes, thank you. Uh, from a neuropathological perspective. Um, there are, two, there are two perspectives I would present as uh, what the future might be. First is more collaborat- collaboration between the neuropathology and other disciplines, such as uh, the neuroimaging, for example. And I already mentioned the dispersion of uh, uh, in the U-fiber layer of, uh, of uh, heterotopic uh, neurons which causes the blurring of the gray-white uh, junction uh, as one example. Uh, but uh, there needs to be correlation with a lot of other aspects as well, clinical aspects of epilepsy, EEG uh, aspects uh, of uh, various uh, EEG patterns, uh, even pharmacology in terms of uh, medications which are used. Uh, and I think the, the collaboration is probably more valuable than any one discipline uh, by itself. Um uh, psychological uh, aspects are another uh, another factor. Now, the other aspect is uh, the pathological one. That the examination of the tissue has to be done using modern neuropathology. Since a hundred years ago, the year 1920, uh, pathologists have used the H and E stain, hematoxylin eosin, and it does show many things in terms of tissue architecture but it's a very nonspecific histological stain and it does not show many of the important features that one sees in in focal cortical dysplasias or in abnormal uh, cortices, uh, such as in or hippocampal sclerosis. Uh, You need uh, special immunocytochemical markers to demonstrate uh, different types of neurons uh, you can distinguish the inhibitory GABAergic interneurons from the uh, glutamatergic excitatory uh, neurons, for example, with specific uh, immunoreactivities. Uh, synaptophysin shows you the synapt- something of the synaptic pattern, and in the microcolumnar architecture, you see abnormally vertical uh, uh, radial synaptic columns uh, that you normally would not see in a and a normal um, horizontal lamination of the uh, brain. And you can also demonstrate very nicely the uh, synaptic plexi in the U-fiber layer, which would never be seen with uh, H&E stain. So the neuropathologist has to have some uh, understanding of what to look for and how to use the proper uh, modern uh, tools in neuropathology to demonstrate these findings that uh, are are not demonstrated with uh, simple uh, histological stains such as H&E or Nissel stains, uh, which have been used for over a century. Um, So the collaboration between disciplines and the use of modern neuropathology, I would say are my two short answers as to what the future is in uh, in, uh, the neuropathology of epilepsy.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. Um, So thank you everyone for taking time out of your day to uh, do this uh, podcast. And um, in closing, um, I just want to remind our listeners that you can claim a CME credit for this podcast activity through the CNS online education catalog. Um, We also encourage everyone to check out uh, more upcoming podcasts in the future. Thanks so much.